I have a question for you. Do you have your Bibles ready? You don't? Well, I suggest you hit pause and grab, download, or even go to kingjamesbibleonline.org on your phone, tablet, or computer so you can follow along with tonight's study. Hello and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. This is a podcast, as you know, we will study the Bible and the biblical covenant and its deeper meanings, especially in today's times. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Now, in continuing with our study from last week with the atonement, now we'll turn it over to my co-host. Okay, I appreciate it very much. Uh, what we're going to do today is is to follow up on uh, what we call the sacrificial system as we started last uh, discourse that we had. In our previous study, we laid out what we call the secular circulatory system of which we laid out seven phases uh, to this circulatory system. And what we would like to do in this discourse is to define and explain these seven phases. So let us now uh, take each phase as we go step by step. Now, our first phase that we discussed in our last discourse was uh, the confession uh, phase. And we wanna look at that, that's our first phase. And as we look at that particular phase, we wanna draw some meaning from that because a lot of times when we read in the Leviticus and Deuteronomy and different books when it talks about the sacrifices, uh, sometimes we don't see some of the imagery or the symbolism that it is portraying. Now, let me just go over some of the uh, phases that we went over last week and then we'll start with phase one to explain and define what that stage is dealing with. Now, phase one was dealing with con uh, confession, and that was when the sinner would come and he would confess his sin. And then we gave, dealt with phase two, which was the slaying of the lamb. Phase three was some of the application of the blood uh, once they had slain the lamb. And phase four was uh, when they took the blood and sprinkled it on the inside of the tabernacle sanctuary. And then phase five was the blood was cleansed from the sanctuary. And phase six was the confessed sins are placed upon Azazel and sent into the wilderness. And the seventh phase was the high priest changing his clothes. So we, we want to try to cover as much as we can uh, in this discourse, we probably won't get all seven of the phases, but we want to try to, as thoroughly as we can, go over some of the phases and the ones that we can't get to today. Then in the next discourse, we'll deal with that. Now, what we did in the last uh, one, we look at the circulatory system and we discovered these seven phases now, what we're going to be doing today is uh, dealing with some of those uh, phases. Now, what we'd like to do in this discourse is to define and explain these seven phases. Now, the next discourse, once we finish the phases, then we're going to make an application to these particular phases with Yeshua the Messiah. But in this particular phase, we just want to explain them. And then once we explain them, then we'll be able to uh, apply them to the Messiah. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to ask you to turn with us in the fourth chapter of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter four. I want to look at that verse. And if you want to know something about the sacrifices, you turn to Leviticus. It explains a lot about the sacrifices. Now, 
we're dealing with phase phase one and we want to look at Leviticus chapter four and want to start we want to start with verses one and two and then we're going to be picking up some more verses okay now in verses one and two of chapter four of Leviticus it says and Jehovah spake unto Moshe saying speak unto the children of Yasharel saying if a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of Yehoah concerning things which ought not to be done and shall do against any of them if the priest that is known it do sin according to the sin of the people then let him bring for his sin which he has sinned a young bullock without blemish unto Yehoah for a sin offering. So now this is uh, particularly pointing out the priest of the priest sin. Okay, now we're going to see there's a similar process when the people sin as well. So I want you to turn with me. Uh, uh, well, just keep there right at the fourth chapter and we're going to look at verse 15. It said, and the elders of the congregation sh uh, shall lay their hands upon, well, no, let me black up a little bit. Let, let's go to uh, verse 13. That's what I want. It said, and if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of Yehoah concerning things which should not be done and are guilty, he said, when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for a sin offering and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. So what we are saying here is that uh, when they sin, they had to come and bring their appropriate sacrifice. So the first phase is dealing with confession. Okay, and as we deal with confession, we want to look at verses uh, 4 and 15 of the fourth chapter of Leviticus. Now, in verse 4 of the uh, fourth chapter of Leviticus, it says, And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before Yahuwah, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head, and kill the bullock before Jehovah. Okay, now that's what the priests had to do. Now, as we pointed out, the, the people had to go through a similar process. So when we read in verse 15 what the people had to do, it says, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before Jehovah, and the bullock shall be killed before Jehovah. So when we understand these verses there's give, they are given a process by which uh, confession is being made so here in verses 14, 4 and 15 we are told that those who were doing the sacrificing would lay their hand upon the head of the sacrifice and kill it before Yehoah now, as we examine this part of the circulatory system, let us be cognizant of what is taking place in the laying on of hands upon the head of the sacrifice by the repentant. So we want to look and see what is the significance of the laying on of the hands. And when we can see that, then we can see that these animal sacrifices in, in tight uh, had a lot to do uh, with how they de dealt with sin back then. Now, as we examine this part of the circulatory system, let us notice the symbolisms or the representation of these things and once we understand that, when we eventually get to the antitype, then we'll go a little bit further, but we're just dealing with the type here. Now let us go through this piece 
by piece. We want to go through this piece by piece. First, uh, the bringing of the animal sacrifice has a meaning. So they had to bring the sacrifice, which we should, which we should look into to be able to understand why they brought the sacrifice. Now, why could not the repentant sinner just come to the priest and confess what once said or did, which was wrong, and go about one's way? No, no, no. It required much more than this. Every sin committed had to be accounted for by both a sentence and a penalty. Moreover, the sentence and penalty for sin was the same for them as it had been for our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they violated Jehovah's covenant. So what we want to do at this juxtaposition is to go to Genesis because what we are looking at is that every sin that is, is, is uh, manifested, it has to be accounted for. So, the, so, so even though they confess the sin and let the priest know that they have sinned, that was not a that that still was not enough to deal with sin itself. So, we we want to look at the whole. We want to look at the system. Okay, now when we turn into Genesis chapter two, and we're looking at verses sixteen and seventeen because this is the covenant. This is the covenant that Elohim had made with Adam. And here it says in verse 16, and Yehoah Elohim commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we are told that Elohim explained to Adam the covenant stipulation that if he ate of the forbidden, that both the sentence and the penalty of doing so would be death. Now, we know that our first parents knew about the sacrificial system because their children, Cain and Abel, offered sacrifices. So unquestionably, we would assume they learn of such from their parents who had been given the covenant and also they had been given the promise that the seed of the woman would come and he would bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heels in Genesis 3.15. And such a promise would come the ransom for a fallen man Karen. Here we see that our first parents were promised a redeemer to come and he would be the ransom for them and the fallen race. So when we read in Genesis 3.15, it says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her, her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel, which is an indication when one's head is bruised, is doing more damage than when one's heel is being bruised. And we know that this had a lot to do with the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so when the repentant came with the sacrifice, it was to take the place of the repentant. The sacrificial animal would receive both the sentence and the penalty for sinning. Sin being the transgression of the law, and the law demands justice for transgressing it. Therefore, the transgressor had a debt to pay to the law for transgressing it. The debt one would, the debt for which one would have to pay for breaking the law was to give one's life for doing so. This debt owed to the law could only be satisfied by the death of the perpetrator. Because you remember he said to Adam, and he said to Adam, of every tree thou shalt freely eat, 
but not of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But when you eat it according to the covenant contract, you would die. So if you broke the law, you would die. Consequently, the way that the creator designed his covenant is that even if the perpetrator would satisfy the claims of the law by giving of his life, yet one could not have eternal uh, life, he could only have temporary life in this present world. So what we're looking at is that even though the law that was broken and the sinner gave one's life for it, then the only life that that person can have would be the life in this world. However, within the covenant, Elohim makes it possible for the transgressor to have eternal life in spite of one's transgression. When the sinner dies for the sin committed, the sentence and the penalty paid to the law is satisfied. So when a person sins and if they die, the law is satisfied. However, this satisfaction of the law or the satisfaction of giving one's life, the law may be still. In other words, the person will still be dead and the law would be satisfied. However, Elohim wanted to restore to Adam and Eve, not only that they could satisfy by them dying, but he wanted them to continue to have eternal life. So the way that he made his particular covenant is to satisfy the law and at the same time, when he satisfied the law, he wanted to be able to give uh, eternal life by raising them from the dead. So what we must understand is that even though Yah's law demanded justice by the life of the transgressor, yet his love, yet Elohim's love for his fallen children is stronger than death. Therefore, in order to have been sentenced to the death penalty for sinning and forfeiting eternal life, how could a sinner get eternal life from the grave or life itself? So let's consider the question of eternal life for a transgressor, whether one is dead or alive. In the covenant Elohim made with Adam, he expressed to him that he could partake of all of the trees in the garden. And in doing so, he would live forever. But if he partook of the forbidden, he would die. So basically, what Yah was relating to Adam was that if he obeyed by abstaining from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would live. But if he had, but if he did eat of that tree, he would die. Obedience would lead to eternal existence and disobedience would lead to eternal death. From this scenario, the one thing which would give one eternal life is obedience to Jehovah's will, even though the sinner paid the price for disobedience, yet the thing which would merit eternal life is obedience, which the disobedient cannot and could not provide. For the mere fact that one has been disobedient, disqualifies, disqualifies one from providing the basis, the basic thing needed for eternal life. And that basic thing was obedience. So the very thing needed to obtain eternal existence goes lacking from the standpoint of the sinner.
if this one factor of obedience could be supplied for the sinner because the sinner cannot provide it, then the sinner could obtain eternal existence if he had it. The disobedient could not provide such an obedience. So the only one to provide the obedience needed would be an obedient person, which would be a perfect human being. And this perfect, obedient human being must be willing to take his life and give it to the sinner and take his death. This is why the repentant comes to get forgiveness. They brought a sacrifice which would vicariously provide both the obedience and the life of which would satisfy both the sentence and the penalty of death. So an animal sacrifice provided that which the sinner needed. This is the first phase. He had to bring a sacrifice. He could not atone for himself even though he would die and satisfy the law, but in order to have eternal life, he needed someone. He needed a ransom, someone that was pure. And so Elohim instructed them to get a lamb without blemish or spot or anything. They always had to have a perfect sacrifice because it's going to be representative of some perfection. So now that we know that uh, when when they came, uh, they brought a sacrifice. So, what what happened when they brought that sacrifice? Well, the Bible says they laid their hands on the head of the sacrifice, and then they cut his throat. But let's 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 take a step. Let's not go too fast though. But let's take the step of laying hands on the head of the sacrifice. When they laid their hands on the head of the sacrifice, what they were doing while their hands were laid on the head, they were confessing their sins. And as they confessed their sins, then all of their sins was going on the pure lamb or the pure goat. Their sins were being transferred by the act of laying on of hands. So as they confessed their sins, they were confessing the life of sin, and it went on to the goat. And the goat's pure life of righteousness and innocence and purity was transferred to the repentant. So the repentant sinner was receiving the pure life of the animal, and the animal was receiving the impure life of the sinner. Okay. All right. So it was a transference process, and we'll be dealing with this process a little bit uh, later, but now we want to go to phase two. Phase one was the confession, and they needed a ransom to do the confession. Okay, so let's go to phase two. Now, when we consider phase two, phase two uh, deals with the uh, sacrificial stage, the sacrificial stage. Okay, let's go through that again. And we'll go back to the same scriptures, uh, Leviticus 4, and we're looking at uh, verse 4 and also verse 5 of Leviticus. Okay, Leviticus chapter 4. And again, we're going to go back over some of the same scriptures we read. Now, here in the fourth chapter of Leviticus, and... We want to consider again verses 4 and 15. Okay. Leviticus 4 and 15. Okay, in the fourth chapter of Leviticus, it says, It said, And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the congregation before Jehovah and lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before Jehovah. And verse 15 says, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before Jehovah, and the bullock shall be killed before Jehovah. Okay. 
So here we see the sacrificial stage. And we are told that the animal was killed. And in the process, its blood was to be collected in a basin. What we must understand about the blood is that it is the main component in the atonement process. It's the blood. The blood is the most important thing in the atonement process. So, uh, therefore, in order for something to uh, be atoned for, there must be the blood. And so when we consider the blood, we know that also a part of the blood was also, uh, well, also a part of the sacrifice was not only the blood, but we have the body of the sacrifice as well. Okay, we won't be dealing with the body at this, uh, uh, in this discourse, but we'll be dealing with the blood because we were looking at the circulatory system and we want to see how the blood uh, is, is, a, is applied in the atonement. So now, when we look at the blood being the most important thing, then what we want to look at is that the blood, as it atones, okay? Now, in the same book of Leviticus, we read in the 17th chapter, Leviticus, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 17. Okay, in Leviticus chapter 17, we want to look at the 11th verse. We want to look at Leviticus 17, 11. And here it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Okay, so, so, so what we have here is that we have the atonement that is made by blood. And so if its atonement is made by the blood, we are also told in that same verse that the life was in the blood. So if the life was in the blood, then it means that the blood represents the life. So when we read about the life, the blood, we're reading about the life. And so as we read about the life, then we have to look at the blood. Now, if the animal's blood was pure, then I mean that it was a pure life. And if the repentant sinner's blood was polluted, then it means that the sinner had a sinful life because the blood represents the life, and the life could only be sinful or righteous. The, li the life could only be good or bad. The life could only be what was in the blood. If the blood was pure, it was a pure life. If the blood was impure, it was an impure life. So when we look at that, when the sinner confessed his sins over the sacrifice, it contained his confession. And in his confession was his sinful life. So when he confesses his transgressions, trespasses, and iniquities, his sinful life enters into the innocent lamb. And the pure, innocent, and righteous life of the lamb enters into the sinner. Once this exchange takes place, we have what is called justification, which is the imputed righteousness. Now keep in mind that once this exchange of the pure for the impure 
the good for the evil and the bad for the good, then once that exchange is made, then that means that all of the blood of the animal sacrifice, all of his blood, or all of his life goes to the sinner, and the sinner is made righteous by that life. But then the sinful life goes to the lamb, the ransom. It goes into that lamb. So this would mean that all of the blood now that would be used by the priest is polluted blood, is impure blood, is bad blood, is sinful blood. And all of the blood of the lamb that goes to the sinner is righteous blood, is pure blood, is it, 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 the blood that has redeemed him. So once the animal die by slaying, it called, we call this the shedding of blood for the guilty sinner. Once the animal was slaughtered, his blood would be used to make the atonement and the flesh would be burned on the brazen altar of burnt offerings. So let us continue to look at uh, the blood now. Let us continue to look at the blood. Now, the blood, the blood was to be taken and ministered in the sanctuary. And we, uh, we have the life, says the Bible, is in the blood. So we're going to look at what we call the spiritual sacrifice, okay? Okay, when we deal with the blood, we are dealing with the spiritual sacrifice. Now, why do we refer to the blood sacrifice as a spiritual sacrifice? Okay, let's look at that question. Why do we refer to the spiritual sacrifice, which is the blood? So why would we call the blood sacrifice a spiritual sacrifice? It is because we are told from Scripture that the life is in the blood. And we know also from Scripture that it was Elohim, spirit, that breathed life into the blood. When Adam was created, the Bible says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So if the life is in the blood, how did the life get into the blood? How did it get there? Because Elohim, he breathed it in there. And when he breathed it in there, then that's how the life became a part of the blood. So the blood represents life, and life represents the spirit. So when we look at the uh, spiritual sacrifice of blood, what we are trying to get at is that spirit of Elohim that is in the blood. Now, when we consider the fact that, that we keep in mind that once this exchange of the pure for the impure and the good for the evil, or the righteous for the unrighteous, the lifeblood of the lamb becomes impure and the life of the repentant becomes pure. The repentant sinner goes away from, he goes away free from sin and now the impure blood of the lamb is taken into the sanctuary tabernacle to be sprinkled and consequently what we have is the sinner walking away with pure the pure life blood 
and the priest sprinkles the impure lifeblood in the sanctuary tabernacle. Now that we know what type of blood the priests would be taking into the sanctuary tabernacle and using in the courtyard, now we go to the third phrase. The third phase is this. Once they go through the confessional stage and then they go to the, the phase two, which is the sacrificial stage, then the third stage that we want to consider, or the third phase, is some of the blood was placed on the horns of the brazen altar, and some of it was taken into the sanctuary. So in phase three, what we're dealing with not only are we dealing with the confessional stage and the sacrificial stage, but now in phase three, <clears throat> we are dealing with the application of the blood. See, the blood could not be edificacious unless it made an application. It was not enough just to be able to say that you brought the blood, but the blood has to have an application. So in Phase three, we want to look at the application of the blood. Okay, now let us uh, look in Leviticus 4, in Leviticus 4, and we'll look at verses 7 and 18. Leviticus 4, 7 and 18. Here in verse 7 of the fourth chapter of Leviticus, it says, And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before Yehoah which is in the tabernacle of the congregation and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Okay. Now let's read verse 18. Now that was for the priest. Let's see what the people had to do. It said, and he shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar, which is before Yahuwah. That is in the tabernacle of the congregation and shall pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Okay, so now we're looking at that third phase, that third phase that we're looking at now. And here in these texts, we are told that some of this polluted blood, now we, we've established that, this blood that they taking now is they dealing with polluted blood was applied to the horns on the brazen altar of burnt offerings and some of it was poured on the ground at the bottom of the altar on the east side of the altar it says by the gate now in phase three which we, we are dealing with which takes place in the courtyard of the sanctuary. See, in this phase, it take, takes place in the courtyard. And remember, in the courtyard of the sanctuary, you had two pieces of furniture. When you first entered into the gate of the sanctuary, there was the altar of burnt offerings made out of brass. And then there was a brazen labor where they had the water. But we are concerned with the altar at this particular uh just a position. So when we look at the fact that the altar had four horns and they would take some blood and they would put it on all four of the horns. And then they would take some of the blood and they would pour it at the entrance as they went into the sanctuary on the east side of the brazen altar. Now, it was placed on all four of the horns there and on the ground. Let us now examine these two aspects of the atonement. Let us just look at these two aspects. The putting of the blood on the horns and the pouring of the blood on the ground. And after that, uh, after these two, we'll... Uh, 
we'll 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 close out and we'll be able to deal with some other aspects later. Okay. When the blood was applied to the four horns of the altar, it carried with it a symbolic significance. Now, what we understand about horns in the Holy Writ is that they represent authority, power, strength, and victory. That's what a horn represents. Consequently, when the sinful blood of the sacrifice was placed upon the horns of the altar, it's, it symbolizes the sinner's authority over the sinful life. See, when he received that blood from the lamb and put his sins on the lamb, the lamb gave him authority, that was power in that blood, gave him authority over a sinful life. The blood of the lamb gave the repentant power over sin and strengthened him to be able to be obedient to Jehovah. And obedience is what is needed for eternal life because that's what broke the covenant, disobedient. But when they put that blood on the horns, it gave them power to be obedient. And of such an application as was made, was made it very clear that one had gotten the victory over a life of unrighteousness. So the horn that represents authority, power, strength, and victory was given to the repentant by the blood of the lamb. Moreover, we are told that some of the blood was poured on the ground at the bottom of the brazen altar. This was symbolical, this was a symbolical gesture of pouring blood at the bottom typified the atonement of the earth. You see, the blood just didn't atone for man, but it also atoned for the earth. And by the blood touching the earth, it signified what Adam had done to curse the earth. Now this blood was used to bless the earth. So the blood of the sacrifice was used to bless the earth under the curse that it had been in. Okay, we're going to stop right there at that at that juncture and see if there's any observations or some questions or some insights that we want to share on what I've already uh, shared. Well, one of the first things uh, that was interesting how you said that Yahuwah had to create a system of to vindicate the sinners in essence. Mm. So to be able to give them eternal life at some point. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see that through the scapegoat, we are able to obtain eternal life by placing our sins on that scapegoat. Uh, okay, we haven't gotten to the scapegoat, yeah, but uh, uh, this, the scapegoat is... It's, it's going to be a little different from Jehovah's okay. goat that gives eternal life now. Oh, okay. So now the scapegoat cannot provide uh, eternal life. Mm -hmm. But uh, when we, when, as we go through the phases, uh, we will get to the scapegoat and we'll show the part that the scapegoat plays uh, in the process of the atonement. Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't uh, oh, referring oh. to as a scapegoat giving us eternal life. Is that uh -huh. it's part of a system for us to gain eternal life. You know, because oh, isn't, isn't at some point the scapegoat, all the sins will be placed on the scapegoat? Oh, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's correct. Uh, uh, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but okay. yes, you're right. They'll be given back to him. But once we see the circulatory system, 
Mm-hmm. And then uh, once we see that, we'll, we, we'll see how that, that is brought about. Yeah, you're, you're exactly correct. Now, you were saying, too, uh, that the horns uh, gave power by when they, uh, the blood, the tainted blood was sprinkled onto the horns? Yeah, well, the symbolical application is that a horn represents power. Just like sometimes the Bible says, take hold of the horns of the altar. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we know why they say that expression. It's an it's a idiom that means that when you take hold of the horns, that you're taking hold, hold of power. Okay. Just like I used to uh, when I was a social worker, uh, uh, I had a supervisor, and she would always say, you need to take the, the bull by the horns. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. that's an expression that means uh, uh, be strong, uh, be victorious. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a type of saying that means you, you handle the situation. That's what it's talking about. So mm-hmm. when you look at the horns here mm-hmm. and you put the blood on it, now the horn means power, but the blood, uh, is a life. So, uh, you're talking about giving power to the life. Wow. And as you give power to the life of the repentant, then you give him authority you give him power, you give him, uh, uh, the type of strength that he needs in order to be victorious over sin. So when he placed that blood on the horns, he was saying that the sinner, uh, has been, been given power over sin mm. and to be able to live obedient of what had gotten him in that, in that situation in the first place. Wow. And also you, you was bringing out too that the blood that was spilled poured onto the ground was to bless the earth from the curse. Mm-hmm, yeah. That was placed on. Uh, yeah. That, uh, now there's a plethora of places in the Bible, but let, let us start with the first one. Mm-hmm. When Adam sinned, the Bible says, then would come forth thorns and thistles. Okay. See, his sin polluted the land. And this is why oftentimes the prophet says that the sins of the p- people have polluted the land. Mm. In other words, there's a very strong connection between when we sin and what happens to the earth in which we are. See, when Adam sinned, it not only affected he and, he and Eve and their offspring, but it also affected the earth. They had thorns and thistles to come up when otherwise that would not have been. Mm-hmm. So it was resting under the curse. And when it was resting under the curse, then the earth needed to be redeemed, just like man needed to be redeemed. When man can be redeemed, then the earth can be redeemed because man came from the earth and then he lives from the earth. So if you pollute one, you're going to pollute the other. And when the prophets looked out, they said the sins of the people have polluted the land. And when they talk about the sins that polluted the land, they were also talking about the sins that have polluted the people. Mm -hmm. And the people have an affinity with the land. So when sin manifested itself, then I can imagine that when Adam saw the first grape on a tree dry up and die, that he recognized what sin had done. Wow. Because that there was no such thing as death. When 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 they ate a grape or a banana or something, mm-hmm. they would eat it and digest it, and no doubt when they defecated or something, that the earth was so fresh that it recycled all of the manure back into the earth in order to be able to produce again. But when man sinned, then uh, Elohim told him what the curse would be, and he said, "In order to get your bread, you'll have to toil in the earth by the sweat of your face." because the earth would not yield to you now like it would have if you never sinned. So it had a great effect on the earth. And so when his blood touched that, when the blood touched the earth in the sanctuary, it was saying he was blessing the earth. Wow. Well, I thoroughly have learned quite a bit. So pastor, can you offer us a word of prayer? All right, certainly. I love it, Father, as we have looked at the circulatory system of the blood and looked at the first three phases of it. We ask 
that as we penetrate and study and concentrate on these things, that we can see that there's a deeper meaning of the sacrificial system than just the surface things that we have been looking at. And we ask that as we continue to probe into these things, that it not just inform us and educate us, but it would help us to make the proper application of the blood within our lives that we can not only be educated, but we can be redeemed. For all true education redeems those who enter themselves into the process of the atonement. And so we would ask, O oh, Heavenly Father, for us, our moderator, and all who listen, that they may enter into this process to be able to see redemption working in their behalf that one day all of their sins can be removed and done away with and we will have a life that will measure with the life of Elohim throughout eternity is our prayer in Yeshua's name and for his dear sake we do pray Amen Amen and Amen Well, that is our show for today We want to encourage you to follow this podcast weekly and also even subscribe to the podcast so you will know when we have posted a new podcast. Also, please feel free to email us at the science of the covenant at gmail.com with your questions, comments, and even your prayer requests. And as it states in the second Timothy chapter two, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto Elohim, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Until next week, Shalom.